You are listening to Deep Neural Notebooks, a podcast where I like to discuss a multitude of topics ranging from deep learning and computer vision to neuroscience and open source software through conversations with experts about their thoughts on the state of their specializations, how things fit into the bigger picture, their journey so far, and the road ahead. I believe that it is through conversations like these that we can boil down the essence of vast resources of knowledge and expertise into more consumable bits that can enrich our understanding of concepts and technologies that are shaping our world. For the second episode of Deep Neural Notebooks, I talk with Thomas Wolf. Thomas is the chief science officer at Hugging Face, a Brooklyn-based startup that aims at building the first truly social AI. Thomas uh, has had an interesting educational background which includes a PhD in quantum physics and a degree in law followed by a 5 year long career as a patent attorney before his passion for science brought him to Hugging Face. Thomas and his team at Hugging Face believe in the power of open source and have been active contributors on GitHub sharing their research and progress allowing the development of technology for the better. In this episode we talk about his diverse career background his journey from physics to law to deep learning and conversational agents we also talk about the vision at hugging face the challenges in building a long term companion like conversational agent the state of natural language processing and how we can do better this podcast is also available on apple podcasts spotify and google podcasts so if you like the content please subscribe to the channel and leave a thumbs up or a five star rating depending on the streaming platform Thank you. Right. So hi Thomas, uh thank you for coming to the show. So uh how how are you doing? How's how's your day? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. A lot of things going on, but uh I'm happy about that. <laughs> right. So so you're you're in Netherlands now? Yeah. I'm close to Amsterdam. Living um living there with my family. Right. Uh, as you can <laughs> Oh, oh. as you can see on my not very serious <laughs> background <laughs> i can see those yeah. cute drawings there yeah yeah so yeah right. we have uh, actually all the with the rest of the team is in new york and and uh, paris uh, hmm. but i'm in uh, the netherlands and we, we may, may have a little team in uh, in the netherlands soon soon we'll see right, i would like cool. to have more people here yeah <laughs> right so let's talk about your journey So I read somewhere that you uh, started with uh, programming when you were 10 or 12 years old. So is that true? Uh yeah. Yeah yeah. So Right so what were you working on early. those days like <laughs> <laughs> So it was very old computers, right? Right. Uh, it was in the 90s, so there were no no internet. Right. So my my father has this old uh, computer uh, which was this more like a calculator and you could program in a uh, basic on this okay. so so i was uh, programming on that and then at school we had the um, texas instruments uh, you know the um, calculators uh, at the at the t at the ti uh, 89 i think yeah and i was programming on the assembly on this so that that was my first uh, thing and then on the computer <coughs> and uh, c c++ right so i read somewhere uh, that you were making some video games, games or that, something at that time like a lot of visual graphic uh, stuff but uh, nothing really like nothing that really was complete enough to to put it uh, on the internet right 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 so could you remember your first project as such like something My you made my first project 
Yeah. Oh yeah. So I think my first project is um, the the first one that was on the internet was in two thousand three, uh, and that was one of these uh, computer game on a calculator. I think it's still out there actually. Uh, it's still. <laughs> I'd, I'd like <laughs> to. I'd like to see that. Yeah, you can check it. So there is this game called uh, Worms. Uh, Armageddon. Okay. Do, do you do you know this game? That's kind of no. old now. I know Snake. So I know Worms. This... Worms. There was a, you had little teams of worms that were fighting, and you were like uh, uh, using rockets and uh, grenades and a bomb to to crush the other worms. So I made an implementation of this one on on a, on a calculator, like on a small in a, in assembly. Uh, I can send it to you, the link to you. Well, that that was me at uh, <laughs> a very young age, so right. But programming wasn't something sort of that you uh, pursued for your undergrad, right? So you did your undergrad in uh, Ecole Polytechnic, I think. I mean, yeah. how you sort of didn't go for uh, sort of with programming for your undergrad and then what was the thought process like sort of back then? Oh, yeah. So um, it's it's kind of cultural. So in, in France, we have a very strong hierarchy that like math are really the top thing you can study. And then uh, theoretical physics is maybe the second top uh, thing you can study. And then physics and computer is uh, used to be quite uh, quite far down, which is stupid. But uh, we are like <laughs> this is how the, the like the history was made, right? We have uh, right. Descartes and uh, all this, uh, and so yeah, I was not really considering this uh, very seriously actually. So so I was more focusing on math and uh, and physics. And so that's why I did my my, uh, my engineering school, like focusing on, on physics, uh, and um, then uh, doing a, even a PhD in the field. Which is, I think, phys physics is still like super interesting. I was working on a condensed matter, which is uh, on superconducting material, which is like a mix of quantum physics and also mm. statistical physics with phase transition and everything. That was, that was really cool. The, the main problem with physics, in my opinion, is that the, the time scale of experiments is very long. When you do like experimental physics, like you need three to four years to get one experiment, you know, <laughs> while we do that in like three contradictory months. Contradictory <laughs> to sort of computer programs wherein you could just write exactly. something yeah. a week or so and then have sort of good results. Yeah, exactly. So the, the math are actually very close to math and learning math. I didn't know that at that time because I was not just didn't really met math and learning uh, machine learning before, and um, so I didn't know that. But the math are, are really really close. Phase transition, a neural network, variational inference, they all really the same thing. Well, they actually come from physics when you when you look deep in the equation. Like uh, variational inference is just uh, all about physics, and uh, there is a lot of uh, Things that goes in common to when you compare phase transition and also um, and also a neural network and all this information theory they are really related to to um, kind of physics concepts like entropy it's, it's really the same really. and um, but the but using this math if you do physics you need like a long time to to get an experiment going while uh, if you do some computer science you can test something super interesting like two weeks and then never like a revolution in in a few months so, so it's really it um, it fits better the way I, I like to to work so but my journey to this was was very long because I just didn't know about that so I was doing this physics thing I was like this is too slow I need something different so I, I switched completely. Uh, for a long time, I was actually a lawyer, 
Um, I had a friend who was a, a patent attorney and he told me, yeah, that's kind of cool. So I looked into it and I was like, okay, I like writing. Uh, law is interesting. I've, I've never, I've never, I've never studied law, so I studied law. That was actually super interesting. Also, um, it's very logical. Uh, I thought it was like all a big mess, but when you dive in law, you're like, oh, that's just actually a very beautiful construction that that we human have made. Like, uh, so um, yeah, I spent six years doing that, and then at the end. Um, I had actually a lot of, uh, um, I was doing um, intellectual property for a lot of startups. Um, I had a big portfolio of startups and, and a lot of them were doing, starting to do deep learning. That was the beginning of the, 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 the big uh, comeback. It was in 2014, 13, 2013, 2014. They were doing like computer vision. And then uh, I was writing their patent. So I was like, uh, Hey, actually, uh, I know this math. <laughs> they look like something I, I know. Yeah. And the more I was diving to it, the more I was like, oh, this is super cool, actually. That, that's like the mix of the two things I like, which is uh, computer science, but I don't do really this, like programming, but I, I don't do it anymore. And also uh, the, the physics equation that I like. So, yeah, yeah. that's how I kind of discovered the field. Right, so what do you like writing patterns for uh, the network implementations of startups back then or like, so do, can companies sort of file patents for the networks that they, they that they're using for their applications? Yeah, that was very yeah that was very difficult because um, there's a big debate in patent law, which is uh, should we patent software or not software and AI. Um, I think a lot of this should is very hard to patent, and I think it's a good thing. So like the, the it was very difficult to find something that was novel and like. No, that that would fit the requirements of uh, of um, intellectual property law, uh, but I think it's a good thing. Basically, I think patent law really works very well for hardware, like uh, mechanical. Uh, I also had a, a lot of uh, startups working in mechanical engineering, inventing new new mechanical device, and I think really patent law is, is really well made for that. And for software, it's uh, I think most of the time we shouldn't have patent basically, but. There are some interaction between software and hardware where you're like, okay, that could make sense. And one one example of startup I had was one who was doing um, um, in the fields. You know, when you want to clean uh, the bad uh, crops, the the weeds, uh, when you when you're doing this, you can also have a computer vision that detects the the, the bad um, plants that you don't want, and so you only spray on this one. So it's like a lot, a lot better actually for everything. You you use a lot of, uh, you you use less. Um, um, uh, what's the, what's the English word actually? Yeah, this the product that that kills the uh, that kills the bad weeds, and also it's cleaner and it's a nice nice user. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So right. this was this kind of thing, like integrating a deep learning model in like a real life. Uh, a real world engine that, that 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 would go in the fields and like right. so before we yeah. sort of go into your deep learning career your machine learning career so i wanted to know that i read that you you your uh, you got accepted for APSD at mit so uh, what were you going to pursue there and how, why did you sort of switch oh, to yeah. quantum physics that feel like a long time ago, but yeah, <laughs> that was in a, that was a, that was like ten years ago, that twelve years ago. 
So at that time, I was working on laser plasma interaction. There, there's this, like super cool stuff where you can have a um, super short um, uh, electron and um, <clears throat> and um, and heavy particle generator using a direction of of a intense laser on a on a plasma. So that I was doing that in a, in Berkeley in California. I was working in, a, in one of the national laboratories, the national laboratory on the hills behind the, the Berkeley the Berkeley campus. And uh, so I was there, and I was like, okay, the US is great, so I, I should maybe do my PhD there. So I applied to the MIT, and then I was accepted in the, in, the, in this uh, general. You you're just accepted there, and then you you need to find some advisor who you want to work with. And I, I would have worked probably on two two topics. One was theoretical, more like trying to deduce um, from very first principle, trying to model how um, atoms interact. It's like some people are trying to make very very basic, not very basic, but very fundamental simulation of a quantum quantum thing. Like basically build a a quantum simulator of what's happening to the particles. It's very complex to do, it's very tough to do, but it's super, super interesting. And um, another field was more in uh, like battery, like um, trying to get better, more efficient batteries. Well, that was also before Tesla, but now it's even it's even more interesting, I think, but uh, yeah. And then, um, and then I also applied in France, and then I had a hard time deciding where I should go. And, uh, and then it's, well, I mean, uh, life goes on. It's hard to to decide. The main the main difference for me was the length. I was like a, a PhD at MIT is five years. If you if you start a PhD in France was three year, and at that time five years looked very long to me. Even closer <laughs> to home, France right. would have been closer to home. So that's obviously a also factor. yeah. You want to stay five years away from family? It's always uh, hard to. I don't know. You you're doing master degree or you're. Oh, no, I just completed undergrad in May, so I'm okay. planning to do a master's in some time. So even I have even I have an option of doing it in the US, or probably mm -hmm. staying in India here with my family and then sort of. So that's a dilemma I have to sort of figure out. Yeah, it's very hard to choose, right? And right. if you stay five years in one country, then probably you want you will settle there and build right. a family there. Right. And do you want to really build a family in another country? It's it's a very big decision. It's hard right. to to choose. Exactly. But in the end, uh, also the the contact with the advisor is like super important, and I had like a very very good relation with my French uh, French advisor. He was like super friendly. Um, we were playing music together. We were doing a lot of things that uh, you can't really do. Uh, I wouldn't have done with with the MIT advisor who had like <laughs> twenty twenty students already and was really really busy. So it's very good to yeah to choose the people you work with. I think it's the most important in many cases just to be sure that you will be happy with with your boss. And I don't I don't regret at all to yeah I'm really happy about the choice. Great. So uh, after your PhD, you switched to uh, law. You studied law for a year or two, I think. And then you sort of pursued law for five years, I think. Yeah, so I studied actually while working. There is a, um, well, they, they are okay to hire people, even if they don't have a law degree when you're a patent attorney. But then you have to take the night school, like you work at night to, to study. And then uh, then you pass the degree. It's okay because it's really hard for people in a, 
like patent attorney, it's really hard to find people who both have law and tech uh, degrees. So usually you have one of them and you study while working for the other one. Hmm. And so, yeah, I did. Right. Yeah. So after law, you then switched to machine learning. I mean, I read this online that your friend sort of was building a startup. And then during that time, sometime before, I mean, you had uh, started learning about these machine learning concepts and everything. So uh, before we go to, we, before we talk about Hugging Face and the work you do there, uh, I'd like to know that how you sort of uh, became well-versed with machine learning concepts. You self-educated yourself. So uh, oh, yeah. how was that process? So what did you do? I mean, you learned, you went through books, uh, online materials, learning tutorials. So how was that process? Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> so the way I did it, is very um, I mean everybody probably has to learn his own way so my way of, le of learning is usually to find like very exhaustive books like uh, big books like real thing that I can that I can read and just read them doing the exercise and read them cover to cover and writing notes and like so I read like um, three or four bo full books I think they're, they're all very interesting um, I think if I could give one advice, I think sometimes online learning is, is a bit overrated. Uh, I, would, I like better offline learning, as I call it, which is reading books. Because online learning, a lot of uh, the blog posts you will find, they're written by, by beginners, basically, who are also learning. It's a, good, it's a good way to learn to write a blog post. But um, only reading blog posts from beginners, will you, you won't see the full big picture behind right. it. Because when it's somebody who is like senior in the field who writes even an introduction blog post, there is actually a lot of underlying uh, uh, um, wise, uh, I don't know, like, yeah. There's a background the, uh, that comes from yeah. their experience. So they can put that in their words to yeah. the blog. But not, exactly. that's not even something that very you can simple. have a beginner sort of uh, blog writer get that into their posts. Yeah, just because they are or they are still learning, right? So right. they will tell you basically what they have understood, but maybe there are something, like they, they can't really tell you, oh, this is very important and this is not important just mm. because they don't know yet. So, so, yeah, I think it's good to really carefully select what you read. And the more we go into the this increasing exponential production of, of, uh, of AI blog posts and AI uh, sharing knowledge, which is great, uh, I think. But uh, the more we go into this, the harder it is actually to, to tell the, the good from the bad, I think. Mm. And to be sure that you are reading something from somebody who actually is very good also. So I think, it's, yeah, it's good to be very um, selective in what you read. And usually the best way for me is just to buy like a good book that people say it's a good book. And the book, books are also underrated, I think. People think we find everything online, but you, you won't find everything. Like like reading Kevin Murphy, a uh, probabilistic approach to machine learning, is just something you, you won't be able to make it by just reading online blog posts. Yeah. yeah. So compared to uh, more formal ways of education, like attending school or college and universities and sort of attending lectures, so compared to that, how was this process of self-educating yourself? I mean, could you draw any comparisons between mm. the two? Yeah, so I think it, just making it for, from book alone is also very difficult. Uh, so I think in the end, after, after you've read a little bit, it's good to see where you feel like you're kind of weak. So for me, on the, <clears throat> on the statistical method, on like, um, there was something I wanted to like dive back into it again. So I took a few classes. I took uh, one classes from EDX on yeah, just basic 
probabilistic models and like yeah diving back into this and also took a few Coursera the the, the Coursera class on the on the graphical models because I, I felt like I, I was also a bit uh, lagging behind and this is good because you will be forced to do a lot of exercises and um, and to confront to the things that you may not be sure you really know well so yeah yeah you need to do that I think but then in the end I'm really impressed by uh, how you can if you're motivated enough how much you you can learn from an online experience only that was my first experience of really learning only on my own and um, I think it's really good. The good thing is that you can really focus on the things you want to learn. So you're always like super motivated. So that's really mm -hmm. great. While you, while you go to university, there is like half of the class, you're like, I don't feel <laughs> like this. So yeah. I'm not interested in. Right. So uh, you, you're working for an NLP company now. So what, I mean, about natural language processing. So how did you, I mean, get into natural language processing? Did, was it before you joined Hugging Face or was it after? Yeah, so the, the way it happened was that uh, one of the founders, uh, Julien, was also um, a former classmate that uh, that was with me at uh, at Ecole Polytechnique, and he actually did a few startup while I while I was doing my my PhD and on low on low career, and um, and he was starting um, a startup on conversational AI, trying to build an AI friend for for like a long time term in AI friend. I was quite bullish at the, at the time. Um, and he, we, we just ended up talking a little bit about like NeuralNet and how they were doing. And I was looking into maybe following a full NLP classes to also catch up a little bit on um, uh, linguistics, more like, um, uh, yeah, computational linguistics. And so uh, we decided we, we, we would follow the, um, the class of Richard Socher at, at Stanford as like uh, independent, independently follow just yeah just build um, a lo a small group of people who would like meet meet every every week or so and try to to watch one class and do the exercise and so um and so we decided to to start that together that was actually very successful i think we had to block the 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 little uh, <laughs> study group we we posted about it we had like 30 applications we were like no this is too big we don't want to start a full online classes so we just took the the ten first or the twelve or the twelve first people who who subscribe, and then we did the the full um, the full Stanford class, um, which was very cool because also in the end uh, we now have a Richard Socher as a as an advisor in the in the startup. So there's a, there's like one one full circle being uh, yeah. being made, and so and so yeah. At the end of the class, I was like, okay, um, I like that, and I I want to do more science in this. I want to go back, and then he was. Um, then he, he and the, the other co-founder, Clement, just had raised a little bit of money at that time. And they were like, yeah, why don't you come and you, and you start to do some science in the, in the company and see what we can do. Hmm. And uh, yeah, basically that's how, we, that's how it, uh, it worked. Right. So the, the cool stuff, as always, was that I knew I could work well with them. I knew I would be uh, f um, fine with them because I already knew them from before. So, so there was a lot of... Uh, uh, it was quite an easy, easy transition, actually. So, how did the name come about? Hugging face—it's quite an interesting <laughs> name. <laughs> do yeah, you know how that came about? Right. 
<laughs> in the beginning, it was very hard to explain to, to people it was a real company. Now it's kind of well known, but in the beginning they were like, "No, this this can't be a name of company." <laughs> so the yeah, the name comes from the the emoji, this emoji with uh, hands on both sides, and um, the so our first project was this uh, this conversational AI, um, which was more uh, a bit like a game. So it's kind of like a, a Tamagotchi game, basically. And the target audience were like teenager, uh, millennials, like um, yeah, very very young uh, audience that they would learn, they would be just they would like to play with with, with this kind of game. So we wanted something that that would be very funny and like uh, just very uh, positive and cheering. And so yeah, that's how we ended up. And also, um, the name is a bit strange, so like people remember it also. So that, that was a cool stuff as well. When you have a complex name, that doesn't mean anything. People have a hard time remembering. Right. Now we, yeah. So, so you guys have the emojis it. everywhere on, uh, with, I mean, on the website and everywhere. Yeah. So do, does that emoji even appear on the sort of the formal documents? <laughs> is it only for <laughs> we the could. Yeah, no. You're right. It should be. We should put that <laughs> on all the formal documents. I'm, I'm, probably I'm writing the first this down. company to yeah. have sort of uh, that. Right. Now so we're talking mm-hmm. Right. Sorry. So you're developing a conversational agent uh, that sort of has uh, open domain conversational abilities, and mm-hmm. uh, that is built for like long-term relationships. Like, so uh, so I read this co- uh, quote you gave somewhere. So you mentioned that we aren't trying to replicate human-to-human conversations since our AI is not faking a human partner. It's instead designed to be a different kind of intelligence. Yeah. So, what do you mean That's by different kind of intelligence? Oh yeah, the, the I mean the a very deep um, I think a very deep um, opinion or feeling that we have at Hugging Face that we want to use AI to extend what we can do as human, and like we want to use AI as not something that replaces human, which is uh, I think the bad the bad way you, you you a lot of people are are using or want to use AI. I think so it's not the not a good take on it. You should take it more like something that lets you do something you could not do before. And so um, we don't want to fake human. I mean, it's like uh, when you read the, what the Miss Azabis is saying from DeepMind, like they want to use AI as a way to like extend uh, research, like to be able to uh, access to to develop research or science theory that we cannot do as human. That's That's also the same idea, basically that we want to use all these capabilities of AI. Like in, in our case, we are especially interested in all the generative capabilities, the fact that AI can generate uh, un- unpredictable stuff, or not really unpredictable, but novel stuff that we would not have thought about, um, which in NLP is the reason why we started with conversational AI, which is the most like generative, creative way you can use, uh, and, uh, you can use AI in NLP, something that's super interactive and that generates a new... A new uh, that generate new text and new image and everything, and so we were very interested about this, yeah, this creation that can be possible with AI creating something that's uh, that's that's new, and um, and that's that's the way we we wanted to to do it. So the the our AI when we were building this conversational AI, we, well, we are still working on it, even though now we have so, so much in open source that it's not the main focus anymore. Um, we wanted to like play with all these new generative capabilities, like generate new images, generate um, funny text, generate uh, new interaction with people, 
And so if you try, if you restrict, if you restrict yourself to just copying what humans are doing, you're actually not using AI to the full potential and not the most interesting part. And if you say, okay, I don't need to copy the human, I can just do, use it for like the craziest stuff I can think about or like the most exciting thing that I can build with it without just having to copy human, but just being free to do whatever I want, you're actually more free to do a lot a lot of interesting things that you wouldn't have to do if you even just wanted to replace a human. So yeah, that, that, that's a very deep um, uh, opinion that we have on, uh, on the, how AI can be beneficial for society also. That's quite a beautiful uh, view that you shared. So uh, yeah. what are the challenges that you face uh, sort of building these uh, conversational agents that can be sort of more uh, multi-domain and sort of that can be more sort of real-like? So what are the common challenges or the bottlenecks that you've experienced along the path? Oh yeah, there are many. I mean, uh, um, it's a very tough, but that, that's probably the, the most difficult, I think, field. I mean, there are some stuff that are easier because we don't want to copy humans, so we can do stuff that are not exactly in the, in the human textbook, and, then, and it's still fine if the interaction is funny and if the interaction is interesting, but there are a lot of stuff that are very difficult just because uh, just because it goes out of the standard supervised learning paradigm when you have to interact with a human. And they, um, it's also hard to put that in a reinforcement learning setting because um, uh, the action space is really big. You can do whatever you, you can do a lot of things when you interact with a human. You're very free, you just don't move and you, you don't just move in three dimension or two dimension. You, you can uh, build like an exponentially big, um, um, tree of possible uh, responses and so uh, it's really hard to like basically just train models basically and then uh, we, we we made some progress in that and a lot of the recent progress we've made were using transfer learning and uh, which is also why we, we open source of some of the tools we were using and they have caught a lot of uh, interest in the community which is why now we, we spend actually a lot of uh, our efforts working on this open source transfer learning tool like our transformer library. Um, so we made some progress on training these models, but it's still like really hard um, and really hard to have good long range uh, context, like keeping track of what the user said, um, keeping track of what the model has said, and then um, all these um, problems which we are still working on, which are very interesting, which is combining basically these models with some rules and some better world knowledge so the, so they don't contradict themselves, they don't say things that are just plain stupid. Even though it's okay when it's funny uh, in, the, in, the, in the chatbot game, but um, it's not really, a, I mean, we would like to control this rather than just have it as a, as a feature, which is that it's not always uh, relevant or it's not always logical. So, so uh, in, in, like mixing, logical rules and like more uh, common sense with deep learning models is is one of the one of the key challenge i think for this right so you guys uh, got the first position at the convi2 competition at nips 2018 so uh, in competitions like these what are the usual metrics to evaluate the performance of a chatbot or a conversationalist agent yeah it's a, it's a very big topic actually um and I think that was one of the main takeaway of this competition, which was that uh, you can be very good on automatic metrics and still not very good on human evaluation. Uh, so these are usually the two, the two 
big uh, category of, of metrics in NLP because all, all automatic metrics are kind of flow. They are really hard to to get to be really in a, um, related to human evaluation. Like it's it's really hard to design good metrics, in particular for generation, just, just from the fact that uh, generation is a very high entropy task, which means that you have a lot of possible answers. And the gold answer that was written by one human is is almost never the only answer that you can that you could do. So it's really hard to say if something is has no word in common with the gold answer, is it a bad answer or not? Well, you you don't really know. So we are making progress on that. Actually, we we've been working also a lot on that um, on the scientific and academic side. Like for instance, this summer we organize a, we organized a workshop at Knuckle, which is one of the big NLP conference. A workshop called Neural Gen, where we were trying to like. Um, summarize a bit what's the status on the metrics and how you can evaluate these generative models and how people are trying to improve that. So there are improvements using more, uh, also using novel model like BERT, like BERT can, can have a nice semantic space if you train it well, that, that can put two responses that mean the same thing but are written with totally different ones that can put these two, these two response clause in, in one space so you can know they are, they are kind of related. So you can use this this large scale pre-trained model also for for the metrics, uh, but there's still a long way to go to be sure that when we have a, a good score on one metric, we also have a, we we will also have a good score on on human evaluation. And I think one additional problem with uh, chatbot in particular on like conversational AI is that there are a lot of dimension. Like you can have a response that's uh, boring but uh, fluent, boring but grammatically correct. One response that's actually very interesting but has some mistakes, but it's fine. So you have a lot of directions uh, along which human evaluate the response, and they are kind of orthogonal. Um, so it's hard to know really what's matter for you. Is it is it more important that the chatbots uh, reply in an interesting way or that it reply in a grammatically correct way? So it's um. There's a lot of things that we there is progress on this on this um, on this uh, frontier as well, but it's a very tough problem. Very interesting as right. well. I think. Even I feel compared to other sort of computer vision problems or uh, problems in other fields, uh, the natural language generation is quite difficult. As I mean, yeah, like you said, so there's a lot there's a lot of dimensions mm -hmm. there. So first, you have to be accurate with the response. So you have to uh, the entity extraction has to be good. The intent classification has to be good. But based on what you get from the user, your response has to be, it, it could either be funny or it could be sort of uh, more serious depending on what you got from the user. So uh, since you're tackling uh, something that is sort of more social, uh, a more social kind of an approach or a social domain. So uh, how do you think you could make so you could add that, apart from the general intelligence of a chatbot, how could you add that emotional intelligence to a chatbot? So, I mean, those specific things that could make a human feel better while con con conversing with a chatbot. Mm. I mean, how could that process be more sort of intimate and beneficial yeah. for um, you? Yeah, I think so. So there are two, usually two. If you if you don't if you don't go end to end, but if you look at the pipeline, there are usually two two things. The first one is really understand what's the emotion that the user is conveying. 
so for that, actually, that's the, one of the first thing we've tackled. Um, so um, it was um, we used a, one model called Deepmoji, which is trained on on Twitter. That was actually, I think, one of the first success story of transfer learning in NLP. That was a model by uh, Bjarkfelbo, where they trained um, they trained a, an LSTM at that time. Uh, to predict the, um, the emoji that people would add to their tweets. You, you just mask the emoji, you take like, a, they took, I think, like 4 billion tweets or things like that. So really a huge, huge, huge data set. And you, you train the models to predict from the text the emoji. And what you, what you discover is that when you use this model, uh, you can transfer it to many uh, sentiment detection tasks. And it has very, very good uh, performances. So a bit like now the the NLP kind of thing, but that was that was, uh, that was before the the Barrett and before everything like this. So so we we also have an open source model that's called Torchmoji, which is Deepmoji for PyTorch. That was also the beginning of PyTorch. We were really excited about that. Um, and uh, and this model is is, is kind of good to classify or like to try to get the general feeling of the of the of the user. And then the other thing is how you how you reply to this user. We know with the good uh, with the good feeling, and here um, I think a bit like everybody, we, we we had to be very careful because we want to have our 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 long term companions like the, the the conversational AI. We want it to be a very positive presence in, in your life, like something that's really positive and, and cheering you up. And um, the the main conclusion that we had at the, at that time was that. Basically, you need to control the generation a lot to be sure that it's really very positive and it's so, that it's very good quality. And so uh, we made a very complex mix of templates and uh, some part which are fully generated at some at some point where we we are okay and we know we we can be we can trust the models. And then uh, for the other, you select one general kind of template and then you fill it with more uh, specific things. So you have to be very careful about the generation and. Um, yeah, I think this is evolving, but uh, yeah, this is uh, some some place where we definitely cannot really be we cannot cannot trust the, the neural network models yet. Right. So you guys have open source most of this, I believe. So what is the company sort of uh, school of thought? Like, uh, are you guys going to uh, sort of build specific uh, products for specific industries that use chatbots? Or are you just going to sort of open source the tools and let sort of other people play around with it and build their own products? So where is the sort of company heading towards? I mean, what what is the ideology? Oh yeah. Uh, so I think today we don't have really uh, um, fixed this. I think the the main thing that is important for us is to keep building this open source core that we think is just very positive in general for everybody uh, in the community. Uh, so we'll definitely keep uh, open sourcing most of what we do. Keep building this open source, uh, this open source core that we have. Um, we we want to to make it bigger, just just the same way we've built it, which is when we see that somewhere there is something that would be very beneficial for the community that nobody has done it in 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 a way that is uh, at least up to us to a standard. <laughs> Um, then we then we we will also build some tools. I mean, we 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 will expand to this. But then, 
I think right now we won't be focusing very on very specific uh, use cases like chatbot, for instance. We may play with chatbot and make them easy to use as a very as, as a, at a very high level, like we've done. We actually have an open source uh, chatbot um, <coughs> repository, which implements the, the solution we had at, at NeurIPS uh, and based on the on the on the transformer model we have. And I think we will keep playing with conversational AI because that's really exciting. Um, but yeah, we won't like build, a, I don't know, like if you know uh, Raza, for instance, we won't build like a, like a Raza model, like at least um, not now, that's, that's definitely not what we do. Um, in general, we are more interesting, right, researched right now in helping the research community because we think there are a lot of things that can, that can still be done by the research community if you like unlock the full potential. Um, that was, I think, one of the, our conclusion when we like had the first chatbot and when we opened source the first thing is that by just helping the community in general, we can unlock a lot of new advances that 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 otherwise would take longer to be there. So really want to help the research community a lot. Um, yeah. Right. So you, you spoke so, about Raza. So we have uh, Dialogflow from Google. So Raza mm -hmm. is the open source version, and then uh, Dialogflow is not uh, open source. So uh, the, a framework like Razite, I mean, allows uh, not just the research scientists, but even sort of beginners to sort of make uh, chatbots or small level, uh, small scale uh, chatbots. So can Hugging uh, Face, I mean, also come up with a framework like this, probably called Hugging Flow or something like that. <laughs> I mean, which yeah, help beginners. Yeah, so I can tell you it's not on our roadmap. I, I think Raza is, is doing a very good job. Um, and uh, I think we admire a lot also how they build this open core uh, kind of model as well. Uh, so I don't I don't see any big interest for us to do the same thing. Uh, probably less well than they have done. Um, yeah. So yeah. No. I think we at least for 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 some some amount of time we will focus on trying to more like do more research probably than we have done and keep this this huge mix of uh, open source plus research is that you, you open source everything in a way that people can use it i mean just not right. not just pushing your code out and you're like yeah do, do whatever you can with this this is my research code and everything is like you have uh, 10 variants and you don't know really which one which one so we, we'll keep very open source in this very clean and usable thing but also at the same time very very close to to the pure the actual state-of-the-art research right now um, trying to push the community in this direction so so it's a bit different from from Raza as well just yeah because we come from different background I think right so uh, for a chatbot sort of company uh, data mm -hmm. I believe is quite an important issue so uh, how do you sort of see that and how I mean how does hugging face sort of take care of you know respecting the user's privacy and things like that Oh yeah, that's a good question. Well, so one of the good things for us first is that we are, as you were saying before, we are very clear that our bot is an AI. So it's very clear that the AI is there and will actually remember what you what you tell her. And that's that's part of the the the, the, the contract with the user. So there is no surprise that oh, 
a surprise. I'm, I'm actually Google Duplex, so I'm sorry you didn't know about that. But I, I was collecting <laughs> your stuff, and now I'm trying. I'm, tra I'm training on your on your data. So here is very clear. I mean, it's, it's an AI, and you expect an AI to remember what you what you've done, and actually to improve uh, itself based on what you what you tell it. And if you're not happy about the answer, you you actually want the AI to learn that this is not a good answer. So um, so it's a lot easier for us to collect data. Um, I mean, at least a lot, I think, uh, ethically sound to collect data this way for us. Um, so we have a pretty huge data set, actually, internally. We have uh, like uh, more than, uh, well, I don't have the, the exact actual numbers, but it's more than 500 million messages. So there's a lot, and we can try bird size models on our own data, which, which we do, actually, on the product. So it's very, I think it's interesting. And we were also thinking about maybe um, making some workflow that will allow um, and tell the user, like, do you want to participate in some research experiment and letting some research uh, gather data through this through this uh, thing, um, but also in a very open manner, like the, the same way we do it. Um, but yeah, the data is is a big problem for for a conversational AI. In our case, maybe one specific problem, but it's it's a bit the same for everybody, is that most of our data is human to to bot data. So you have to find a good way. Everybody would like to get human to human data in, in dialogue, but it's it's kind of hard to get. Mm -hmm. And so um, when you only have human to bad data, you have to like be aware of that and maybe process it the same the, the, in the good way. For instance, you want usually want to model more the human response than the bot response because you already know the bot. So if you if you if you just model your own model, you're not really learning a lot from your from your data set. So there are a lot of things you have to be careful about. Uh, but on the other hand, I think like making a game like what we were doing is, is very good because you have a lot of interaction. When you're talking to uh, Siri or when you're talking to uh, Alexa, usually you want, you want your problem to be solved as, as fast as possible. You don't want to talk to Siri for one day just to get your plane <laughs> ticket, right? You just want, if, if it can understand Not with really just definitely. one question. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the fact that we were doing like this very... Uh, creative and engaging chatbots uh, add as a consequence that people were talking to it a lot and like just sending funny messages. So we, we had like, 50, I think around 50 times more uh, message per user or per, like per user conversation than a typical goal-oriented chatbot. So I think that's a good way to go to it. And actually, even on mechanical truck, when people try to crowdsource data set, now they are trying to make it more and more like a game. So like, also, the Turkers are more engaged, and they are like giving more about it. So, if people could make a data creation more, uh, more like a game, I think it would help a lot to to get better, uh, more quantity, and also more interesting data. Right. So, I think another problem with data would be data bias. I think, which is also an important topic right now. So, I, mm -hmm. I, when one of your talks, you mentioned that you guys are uh, using existing data sets and also constructing data sets for your own sort of applications. So. Uh, how do you take, I mean, it is very easy for sort of such biases to creep inside conversations. So how can, I mean, how do you uh, solve that? How do you work on that? How do you make sure that that is not an issue for the application that you're trying to build? Yeah, so so I don't think we are the most experienced in this field. Um, also because it's, not, it's probably less critical for us. Um, so one way we were careful about that was... Uh, on the generation part, not to let the model like go on free flow generation by default. Uh, so to be sure that we control the, 
the biases on the the quality of the generation um but yeah i think we on the on the natural language understanding part i think we, we still have a lot of things we can do well this is also very i mean it's it's more important now that we have this large-scale pre-trained model which have all these biases in them than it was before and i think it's a good thing because now people really try to see how we can debias this model or how we can debias the training data set but before that they were like the discussion about bias was like a very small discussion at the end mm. it was just just a little bit of like, yeah in machine translation you want to translate like a doctor by by he or she and not always he and that, that was mostly machine translation because it was the only the only field where people had like large large scale data set and right now the discussion is is getting bigger in every in every field of nlp so i think it's good but we we don't have like any solution right now we're just interested by the by this as everybody and trying to also personally i'm trying to push to keep this discussion in the middle of discussion in the in the center area to not say this is like a for a side track on ethics i think it's for the main track of using these models but um yeah it's just definitely something we're following very closely right so the sort of interactions between the human and the chatbot so the application that you've put out there on the internet so they are more of text based but uh, i believe that you guys are uh, not just focusing on that and it's more of human and machine interaction so what sort of other ways i mean uh, what sort of other channels could this take i mean through voice or through sort of text or like what are the other i mean directions in which you are thinking about this yeah exactly what you mentioned so the two main are yeah image and and uh, and sound um so for sound i think there is already a lot of very good team out there very good uh, also a very good api uh, so we we are relying on a external api to like go from speech to text and then text to speech um i wouldn't say it's a solved problem but it's a problem that's really um that's really evolved, that's really as as a, as a also increasingly be be good i think the quality of like speech to text text model is now very 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 impressive so we don't do any research on this internally on on uh, images we do a little bit um but really nlp is our core competence so we're we're just starting to play with with take with images and mostly as you can guess like generative models because that's that's the way we are as always excited about stuff so like all this um ImageNet segmentation or something like that or like classification are not super interesting for us. We also use APIs from Google, from uh, AWS to do like um, um, yeah extraction for images. Um, but we, we are starting to play a bit with uh, generative and also with multimodal models, which which makes sense for us, like multimodal text and vision models. I think that's that's really the way. That's also a way we can overcome some problems with purely text-based models. They are sometimes a bit dumb because they have never seen a picture of anything. So that, I think that's that's something that will be very interesting in the future. So we are, we are starting a little bit, but we haven't published anything or like really open source anything on this. Right. So, uh, so you, you're a father of a young one. So your son, so I mean, while he was growing up, since during that period, probably you were working on natural language processing. So were there any insights that 
you could take from the process of sort of uh, learning language in humans i mean how we, we how we are good at it how you could i mean how we could take some of that information or some insight from that and put into our machines to sort of get better results <laughs> yeah that's a good question i mean uh, i think it's a question a lot of people have and like uh, like the other also have it so the way we train this model is a bit strange right we we like some randomly sample like one sentence and we're like okay this is one sentence learn it and then like and then this is another sentence randomly sampled from the internet and like nobody really learned language like that uh yeah so there is a lot of things we probably will be able to do in the future so for like um for kids we we know that language is also a lot grounded in like vision and grounded in action like you, you you usually associate like a sentence or you associate words with like uh, it can be a physical act, yeah, images, can be a speech act, can be all these things. So um, everywhere here, we are, we are very, um, we, we don't do that in machine learning, basically. And it's hard to, it's hard to imagine. So here there is a big question, um, which is, do, do we need to have a fully embodied robot or do we need all the modality to be able to learn really um, language in the way human learn it? Uh, that's not clear. I hope we don't because that would be very complex if we need to have like fully moving robot that you raise for like a few years before you can actually <laughs> use before, before they can use language to do some tasks that you wanted to do in the beginning. <laughs> um, so we are exploring uh, what we can do without doing that. But for instance, multimodality is something that's interesting if we can scale the data set and uh, train. It's very interesting. Language, just studying, just learning from language alone is, is still a bit strange because in the end it's just about co-occurrences of words just like these two words are close and these two words are also close to, to each other they are often said together but you feel like there is a very there is a limit to what you can learn from that it's still super interesting that we managed to get the models that are that's good without having any other external input um, but in the end I don't think we can reach like AGI or any kind of like uh, thing where we would say this model understands test text hmm. just by using text alone. So we have to find another way. Right. Yeah. So you also uh, made a sort of a pet project for your son. It's called Magic Sand. It's on GitHub, and it's okay. kind of an AR sandbox. So what was the inspiration behind that? I mean, I saw the project and it was really cool. But what was yeah, the inspiration? Yeah, we can build one. Yeah, there was this. I think so. I saw um, <clears throat> there was there, there was an original project actually from uh, UC Davis, uh, um, a researcher at UC at UC Davis has built one one uh, one version of this. Um, it was very hard to use. You had to install the very specific version of Ubuntu and compile everything, and it was all command line. It was really um, it was very uh, very well made from a software point of view. Like the code was very clean, but the user experience was really not uh, that great. And um, I wanted something that basically my kid could play with. Just uh, very. And so I decided to uh, make one version uh, that would be open source and that would be with uh, with um, uh, with a good user experience, with like graphical interface and everything, and um, and uh, so I built one for his uh, for his uh, third birthday, and, um, and it's really cool. He's still playing with it now, and it's been like three years. <laughs> it's probably the, the the toys that has the 
the longest uh, life among all the other toys. It's a bit messy because it puts hands everywhere in the in the living room, so I'm not allowed. Uh, my wife does not allow the handbag <laughs> to be always there. And then I I open sourced it. I posted on the on the internet. I also wrote a tutorial uh, with all the things. So if you want, you can rebuild it. It's very it's very easy to build. Well, at least it's very cheap. You can just buy a Kinect, which costs like a. Uh, 15 bucks, I think now, uh, used Kinect. And if you have a Beamer, then you, you can just basically build it with a, a, few, a few pieces of wood. And, um, and it was my first project that went viral because it went on the first page of Reddit. I was like, okay. And everybody was like, hey, yeah, that's really cool. You should build one for me. And then I was like, okay, maybe. <laughs> so for once, I thought about build, starting a company building sandboxes for, for kids, which is uh, <laughs> maybe something I would do in the future. Uh, but it was really cool, it, and it, it was all about um, the funny thing is that it was also using uh, CUDA or like OpenGL kernel to do the shader, and this was like my first uh, GPU experience uh, to make this thing work. Yeah, you still have learned a lot. I mean, during the process. Yeah, I learned a lot. I still had a lot of things I wanted to do with this project that I haven't done, like have a game where you you would have a city that would build itself on the on the sand and you would be able to like play with this. Just the idea was also to get my kids to play with some game that would not be on a screen but would be like in real life, you know, like a video game that would be actually something you can interact with your your hands and like playing with sand at the same time. So yeah, quite cool. Right. So. Uh... What advice would you give to sort of people starting up right now in machine learning or deep learning or NLP or, I mean, uh, what sort of things that you learned along the way do you think that can help people sort of be better at what they're trying to get into? Um, yes. So, uh, wow, that's a big question. Um, I think don't underestimate the time it takes to be... Um, to be good, I think in ML it takes it takes a few years, however fast you go, and probably have a long, a longer term interest than just doing ML, like something that you like in the end. Like, yeah, like for me, it was always clear that NLP and generative AI were really the thing I wanted to do, and so it's good because then you can screen some stuff that you don't really want to spend time on. Um, and then, yeah, you need, you need to, uh, once you think like you have the background, it's good to start really playing with the models and to start really diving into the code because that's where you really learn stuff. And that's where you start to see also what you actually don't know and what, where, what you need to do. So like build toy project, like it's also a good way then to showcase them to companies. Uh, yeah, I've built this. You can see the GitHub, and you put the results on your GitHub, like the images that you've generated or the thing that you've done, and just yeah, not just rebuilding stuff, but trying to build stuff that are a bit specific to your interests. You know, not just training an LSTM. Say, you see, yeah, there is a repo I've trained in LSTM. No, but like you're like, okay, I, I had this weird idea about LSTM, and I tried it, and it didn't work. But uh, I tried it, and you can see the code, and that's the most interesting. I think that's where you, you, yeah, that's where you can show that you, you've got some interest that goes behind just following the hype. I think. Right. Thank you so much. So one last question. So you've done it all. You attended business school. You've done physics. You've been a programmer. You've you've done law. 
now you are a science lead at an nlp company so what is left for you to achieve could could i see you sort of into biology or history or art and what is left <laughs> for you to explore after you know maybe this, this yeah i think it's range a... of subjects I mean, life is too short to do just one thing, right? You should do uh, all totally. the things you want to do. It's uh, yeah. So don't hesitate. I mean, one advice I think maybe is just don't hesitate to change career if you're not happy. I mean, you, well, try the thing, but after after four to five years, you can change. It's okay. You you can start all over if you if you want to to do something new. It's, it's I think it's the most interesting thing I've done is every time I change fully, uh, and then you start fresh, and you're like, wow, I'm all, I'm again, I'm learning everything, and that's really cool. I feel new. But yeah, right. And even I think you can agree involved. that uh, everything that you learn along the way is going to help you sometime in the career. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sometime in strange way, right? But like uh, my low, my lower lawyer um, background is it helped me a lot. Mostly because I was billing by the hour, so I don't spend hours like on nothing now anymore. <laughs> I'm always like, oh, I spend one hour doing nothing. I have to do something, yeah. uh, which is uh, good or bad. But it's uh, now it's also part of myself. So yeah. Yeah, that's funny. So we'll cut this here. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thanks a lot for being on the show. It was nice talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.